As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us pray for God's illumination. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. I invite you now to listen for the Word of the Lord. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the human from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the human whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the New Testament lesson from the lectionary comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 38 and 42 through 58. After the first service, someone came up to me and very graciously said, well, that sermon was intellectual, and I suppose I've been accused of much worse, Uh, but it is true that certain texts lend themselves to more intellectual reflection, I suppose, than others. This is certainly one of those dense and thick texts But I can assure you that it is richly rewarding if we're willing to take a plunge into its depths. The theologian Karl Barth was once asked uh, why the theology that he wrote about was so complicated. And his answer was, he who does not work shall not eat, quoting the scriptures there. And it's true also of many scriptural texts. Uh, It's certainly more difficult to prepare a Thanksgiving meal than it is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Uh, But all of that preparation certainly pays off with a rich feast for the mind. And so as we read this text today, my prayer is that this will be the feast for your faith that it has been for mine over many years. So listen once again for the word of God as it comes from 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a breath body. It is raised a spirit body. If there is a breath body, there is also a spirit body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, he's referring to Christ now, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, for you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like many of Paul's letters themselves, today's sermon will begin with theology and end with ethics. So I invite you again to put your theological thinking caps on because it's not always easy to follow Paul's train of thought. So we're going to plumb the depths of that passage we just read this morning. Prior to this passage today, we see that Paul has set out to write a detailed explanation of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection beginning at the beginning of chapter 15. And in verse 12, we begin to get a sense of why it is that Paul sets out on this mission in the first place. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems that some in Corinth must have been denying the resurrection of the dead, and so Paul argues against that idea throughout the first part of the chapter. He writes that the reality of the resurrection has already begun. It's already been inaugurated in the person of Christ, whom God has raised from the dead. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, 
so also will those who are in Christ also share in his resurrection. But it was not the concept of the afterlife generally that was at stake for Paul in this passage. Most Greco-Roman philosophy at the time affirmed belief in the immortality of the soul, but only in a purely spiritual sense. Little allowance was made for any kind of physical post-mortem existence. Early Christian churches often found themselves entangled with this kind of thought and had to fight to distinguish themselves from Gnostic traditions that prized the eternal spiritual over the temporal physical. In contrast to such Greco-Roman thought, the Jewish tradition in which Paul was rooted never made such a full-throttle distinction between mind and matter, or matter and spirit. Both the physical and the spiritual comprised the one realm of creation, and neither realm was more inherently evil or more inherently pure than the other. The physical and the spiritual shared an intertwined fate, and neither could be whole without the other. So Paul's argument is moving in this direction throughout the course of this chapter. And our text today picks up as Paul's focus narrows to the resurrection of the body, specifically. He begins with a double question against a hypothetical opponent, as well as a very firm rebuke that clarifies his concern with affirming the resurrection of the body. But someone will ask, he writes, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body are they raised? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul does not imagine a genuine inquiry from a curious person, but a sneering question from a skeptical person, perhaps a skeptical Greek. In what manner are the dead raised? How does that happen? What would such a body be like? And certainly we hear echoes of these questions today. A corpse decomposes into the earth. Its molecules scatter. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. How can such a body become revived? What would the physics of that entail? And indeed, Paul's confession of a physical resurrection raises a number of questions. Will the dead be raised with their first bodies patched up? What would that mean for those who died young or those whose bodies are somehow deformed? Or alternatively, will the dead come back with altogether different bodies? In which case, how can it be said that such bodies are really the same person who inhabited the first body? Perhaps some of these questions seem frivolous, but actually they're real pastoral questions and they're not new. Christians have wrestled with them throughout the ages. And over the centuries, there's been a remarkable amount of theological reflection that has yielded a great deal of fascinating speculation. Now, Paul doesn't venture to answer every question that an inquisitive mind might pose. But he does delve profoundly into the question of what our resurrection bodies will be like. Paul seeks to answer the question of how our resurrection bodies can be both like and unlike our first bodies. 
And the short answer that he gives is that our resurrection bodies will be like Christ's. Incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual. Yet also recognizable as who we really are. Just as the risen Christ was recognized by his disciples as Jesus. The resurrection body is comparable, Paul says, to a plant that has grown from a seed, far more glorious in splendor, but also not an altogether different organism, and in both cases, physical. The heart of the matter comes in verse 44. Paul writes that a person's body is sown a breath body and is raised a spirit body. If there is a breath body, there is also a spirit body, he writes. The terms breath body and spirit body provide the key to understanding Paul's argument throughout this chapter. The terms are printed, by the way, on the back of your bulletin if you like a visual to follow along. The word body, soma, occurs in both terms and denotes a physical, fleshed existence in both cases. But the accompanying terms, breath and spirit, are what changes from the first body to the second body. The first body is what Paul calls a breath body, a soma suketon. It's a body sustained by what we might call the self. This is the body formed at creation. We saw this uh, text in Genesis 2 make a a reference to what Paul quotes in chapter 15. In Genesis 2, God gives to the human being the breath of life, and the human becomes a living being, a sukane sozon. So you can hear the Genesis word sukane at the beginning of Paul's term suketan. So he's deliberately quoting that text. We get the English word psychology from this term. It refers to one's inner life, that which sustains our physical self. These bodies are sustained by our breath, and when we cease to breathe, this body passes away and dies. At the resurrection of the dead, however, we are raised, again as a body, again as a soma, but this time, instead of being a soma suketon, we are raised as a soma pneumaticon, a spirit body. Our suketon, our self, the breath that once sustained us has been replaced by a pneumaticon, a spirit. You can hear the term in the term pneumaticon, the word pneuma, which is the word spirit, and is present in the term Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying is simply this. Our bodies are now animated by the breath of life which God bestows upon us as gift. Our breath comes from God, but is not itself actually God. And when our breath departs, our bodies die. At the resurrection of the dead, we are raised with bodies, just as we were first created with bodies. But what changes is that which animates our bodies. While the breath of life is what animates us now, God's own spirit will animate our resurrection bodies. This is why our, our resurrection bodies are eternal. The breath of life is a borrowed gift from God that eventually ceases. 
but the Spirit of God who animates the risen Christ and who will also animate our resurrection bodies is eternal. So also our resurrection bodies will be eternal. So Paul says the resurrection body will not be a breath body that can die, but a spirit body that cannot die. In Genesis, we read that at the beginning of creation, God breathed into the human being the breath of life. In the Gospel of John, when the resurrected Christ encounters the disciples, it says that he breathes on them, but this time it says, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. So you see the resurrected Christ breathes onto the disciples, not the breath of life, but the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the resurrection that is to come. And so we've seen that it's not a vague notion of a post-mortem existence that forms the basis for our Christian hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which we will also share at the resurrection of the dead. And this is the hope that can sustain us when we face the sting of death in our own lives. For we know that though in Adam we die, so in Christ we shall be made alive. Now, the theological implications of this hope haven't always trickled into the practice of Christian ethics the way that they should. From the early Gnostic heresies to contemporary mind-over-matter philosophies, quasi-Christian ideas have persistently suggested that the spiritual is somehow more real, more pure, more otherworldly, and ultimately then more important, more divine than the physical. As a result, bodily existence has sometimes been described as a kind of prison from which our souls are at last released on the day of our death. The physical world has sometimes been described as a kind of waiting room from which we will one day escape as it passes away. As though life here were a kind of holding pattern, a means to a greater end, but not in and of itself the destination. But as I hope we've seen in our scripture text today, the physical world was the plan all along, and human beings were always meant to inhabit a body. And so Christian hope has to trust that God is making all things new, both spiritual and physical things. Even at the end of the age, the physical and the spiritual will always remain two sides to the same coin of creation as God has always intended. Now, a number of ethical implications, I think, emerge from such an understanding of creation that holds together both spiritual and physical things as mutually imperative. It's sometimes assumed that religious people only care about spiritual things, disembodied things, while non-religious people only care about earthly things or physical things. But again, as we've seen, such a perspective that distinguishes between realms to such an extent should be impossible from a Christian point of view. To assume, for example, that, dis that the disembodied is somehow more pure than the finite physical is to overlook the reality of brokenness and our need for God's healing 
in the minds and souls of people. For example, medicine for our physical health has long been of greater concern and priority than care for our mental health. And some to this day continue to deny the severity of mental health in countless lives as though our mental health were somehow more immune to the finitude that plagues our physical bodies. But for people to be whole, they must be well both mentally and physically. And I long for the day in which people can share their struggles with mental illness the way they are comfortable sharing their struggles with physical illness like, for example, cancer. On the other hand, the notion that the physical world is somehow dispensable or disposable while the spiritual world is what really matters has led to all kinds of neglect of bodily existence. Just consider human complicity and tolerance of extreme poverty throughout the world, or the ongoing presence of racism in our communities, which we either haven't adequately addressed or in some cases refuse to even talk about, or consider our resignation to violence as the cost of doing our human business. You see, if God saw fit to create us with bodies and God sees fit to raise us with bodies, then we cannot stand by and tolerate such abuses to the dignity of human bodies. Our scriptures today remind us that a human being is both a body and a soul. And if physical and spiritual existence are both an imperative and integral part of being human, then we cannot neglect either entity. The bottom line is that anticipation of a bodily resurrection should underscore Christian ethics by always accounting for the physical and the spiritual in all that we set out to do. The church is not simply a dispenser of religious philosophy concerned only with disembodied ideas and abstract concepts, nor is the church simply a humanitarian organization or a charity concerned only with doing the greatest good for the greatest number. No, the church proclaims faith in a risen Christ, an embodied Christ, a Christ who shall reign forever and ever. And so our proclamation of his resurrection should prompt us to boldly embody that Easter hope that has already been inaugurated and is coming in its fullness. I'm proud to say that Presbyterians have historically lived out our theology of the resurrection of the body by our approach to missionary activity. Presbyterian missionaries built not only churches, but also schools and hospitals, thereby acknowledging that humans are not only souls that need to be saved, but also have minds and bodies that need to be saved as well. I know a Presbyterian pastor in Mexico who shepherds seven different little rural congregations. Some of them have buildings and others meet under trees. But whenever a new building is built, he always insists on adding a room off the sanctuary that can serve as a pharmacy that dispenses basic drugs like ibuprofen to locals that saves them a three-hour bus trip into the big city. Our communities have both physical and spiritual needs, that pastor told me. Friends, our salvation in Christ is so encompassing, so complete, and so all-sufficient that it offers us not merely an idea of some disembodied existence after death, 
but the promise of a completely remade and restored creation. After death, we do not float away and dissolve like a drop of water in the ocean, as some are fond of saying. No, we will be raised with spirit bodies not given to decay, raised with bodies that are healed and whole, and raised as individuals, the individuals that God created us to be, but without the brokenness and the wages of sin that have splintered both the physical and spiritual existence of our breath bodies. So my prayer for us is that until the hour of our death comes, as we think about what it means to serve Christ in the world, that we will anticipate the fullness of the hope that awaits us beyond this life. May each breath we take remind us not only of God's gift of life, but also of the coming day when we shall be made well, when all things shall be made well, when our breath will be replaced by the very Spirit of God, which will enliven us forevermore and evermore. Alleluia and thanks be to God for this hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.